Hello, welcome to PSR, People Speaking Rail. I'm the head of Intermodal Solutions here at FreightWaves, Mike Bowdendistel. I'm joined by Joanna Marsh, whose house is under construction after a bit of a, a act of God. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Okay, we're we're already talking about it. Yeah, so um, about almost three weeks ago on a Saturday morning, it was a very nice day, blue skies, no wind, no rain, big, big, gigantic oak tree. Just decided it was uh, it it was done with with its life and just fell like right on on um on the house <laughs> and and uh, and yeah, so um. So right now, if you hear footsteps throughout, if you hear footsteps, it's um because uh, uh, the insurance hired contractors to um, move out the furniture. Um, they actually haven't started on rest- restoration of the um of the roof and and the ceiling. Um, so it's a very long process. I'm as I'm sure as some people um are familiar with, unfortunately, for better for worse. So. Yeah, maybe it'll be good for rail volumes. We'll get some lumber on the on, on the railroad. Um, yeah, there you go. What, what? <laughs> so you've been writing all these articles, um, you know, in the middle of this construction project, and I think one of them is really uh, sort of topical today because we're going to be talking to Harris uh, Ligon um, shortly, who's a co-founder of Telegraph, does a lot with rail service. Um, and so, why don't you talk us uh, walk us through this first one about how? The three of the class one rails have to keep giving um, you know, service updates uh, based on the STB's new service rules. Um, I guess CSX is off the hook. Is that right? Yeah, sort of. I mean, they they are off the hook in the sense that I think they don't have to to report. Uh, you know, sort of uh, get in touch with the STB biweekly in in terms of like how they're doing. But they are. Um, each of the railroads uh, had set targets for themselves. In terms of where they would like service to be in so many months, and um, CSX for the most part minutes targets, uh, but VNSF, Union Pacific, and Norfolk Southern um, haven't fully met their targets yet, which is why they have been told to continue to um, report biweekly to the STB about you know how things are going. Um, um, and of course, that said, all four of them still um, uh, are encouraged to. Uh, Report uh, sort of the monthly um, headcount uh, goals and see you know what their targets are and whether they've met them um, since uh, since you know it's the SDB's uh, belief that you know the the, the rail count um, or sorry the headcount um, that there is a relationship between headcount and and rail service um, and so there's that and then also I think all four railroads still have to submit data on. Um, some other service metrics since uh, you know rails can be inter- interconnected networks so you have a uh, so they there's still um, some uh, some data like you know first mile last mile data that um, that they're being required to submit but yeah I mean CSX um, doesn't have to do the biweekly um, reports but uh, the other three still have to yeah I guess there's some data suggests that Norfolk Southern's uh, service is lagging the rest of the the industry. You have the sort of a, a chart on that with weekly intermodal speeds that shows Norfolk Southern um, behind. Um, yeah, so this is this is trains holding per day, which shows Norfolk Southern still elevated um, you know versus where they were sort of in the pre-pandemic levels. I guess some of that is um, you know employees. I think they talked about how a third of their locations, their employees still below suboptimal levels. Some of the other, Intermodal um, 
you know, carriers have gotten a little bit better. You know, BNSF uh, have a similar chart in BNSF that shows that actually they are, their number of trains holding per day seems like it's back down to a normalized level. Um, you know, part of that's just lower volume coming in through the West Coast. Uh, but, um, you know, quite, quite a bit easier when um, intermodal volume is down double digits. And then the weekly train speeds, I uh, have a, a sonar chart on that, which shows, you know, Norfolk Southern is in purple, shows them lagging the rest of the industry on intermodal train speed. I mean, I think what might be related to that would be, um, you know, that, that East Palestine, where now Norfolk Southern said that they're digging up, you know, a lot of the soil underneath those, uh, underneath the tracks there to make sure there wasn't any um, environmental contamination. So that's something to to, to watch. And then you also put out an article on um, the rail suppliers, Trinity Industries, GATX, Wabtech. I used to follow those companies ex- extremely closely. Don't um, follow them as closely anymore. Anything interesting you learned uh, from the suppliers? Yeah, I think that um, at least for, for Trinity and for GATX, uh, you, you, you have this uh, softer volume environment, but yet, you know, they're still kind of holding on to um, their their outlook that uh, that there's still pent up demand. Um, and, uh, you know, and if rail service continues to improve, um, that will only uh, relieve that pent up demand even more. But regardless of, of the, 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 the rate of, of rail service improvements, they still see that there's, um, yeah, that there's, there's still, uh, um, a, a need and, and also a desire to use rail. Um, so yeah, and, and both of them said that, um, and, and Webtech, um, the, the comments I, I focused on more were, um, were sort of their technology products sort of in, in light of, of rail safety developments and then how they're, um, you know, if, if, and how they're working with customers, um, to, you know, address some of the, um, uh, you know, the, 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 detection systems um both like on the track and and in on the train as well so uh so yeah i mean they're both pretty interest i mean the other three calls were pretty interesting so still a decent amount of tightness for for rail cars is that right but by and large because yeah the yeah carload volume is still holding up yeah i think so yeah I, i think also um you know, because of, you know, partly because of the uncertain macro environment, partly because of inflation, I, I think people are still kind of holding on, uh, partly because, you know, new rail cars are, are expensive and like people are still trying to hold on to, to what they have. Um, and so, and of course you have the retirements um, uh, coming up with, for, you know, for the box cars and, you know, perhaps some other cars too. So, you know, that's, you know, that that's still on the horizon. And so I think, you know, it's trying to to, to milk the assets of what you have before, you know, you have to, you know, uh, go get some new rail cars. Yeah, all that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so with that, I want to bring on today's guest, which is Harris Ligon, co-founder and CEO of Telegraph. This is a venture uh, capital-based rail data and software OS company that works on predictive uh, visibility. Do we have Harris with us? There he is. Mike. Thanks for joining us. Julianna, how are we doing? Doing great. And always good to see you. Well, folks, I, I think that to, to kind of kick it off, I think one of, one of the things that Joanna was just talking about was kind of rail car availability, rail car tightness in the, in the broader marketplace. One of the things that, that we have noticed in some of the data that, that we're collecting internally and some of the conversations we've had with customers and users is that it, it looks like the continue, if you're, if you're a user of leased rail cars and you survived the past two years, 
you are unlikely to go back to uh to a where you are a high user a railroad system car so i think the increase of wanting to use private cars is only going to continue for for the next five to ten years and so trinity gatx and other rail car leasing companies are only going to see the benefit of that long term i think the bigger question for the railroads is going to be how are they going to handle process optimize and distribute all of these empty rail cars that are not directly owned by them because they don't have the motivation to do so i mean i guess there was all those issues with the embargoes on union pacific that you know they were handling their own car giving priority to their own cars versus the cars that were owned by the the leasing companies have you seen that yeah, Mike, I, I'm not sure if it's, a, if, if it's always a question of, of motivation with, with the class forms. I oftentimes think there there's sometimes technology at play. And so 600 railroads in North America, a lot of the traffic owned by now six major class ones, they all have their own internal car distribution systems, which are mainly designed around their own system cars. You provide a you know, 10, 20, 30% increase in private cars under those systems that haven't really been re-optimized to handle that, that type of traffic. I, I think you're going to see some sort of effects especially if rail volume continues to climb in the, in the way that it is shown in years past that it has the ability to. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, so so that's interesting. And that does lead to greater congestion that, that shippers see. And so maybe that's another question for you is, you know, we have had, at least on the intermodal side, the volumes are down. I guess on the rail carload side, they're kind of mixed, sort of shows the industrial economy is in a better spot than the consumer economy. It, you know, what are you seeing right now in terms of rail service? Has it gotten better than it was last year with some of the traffic coming off with, um, you know, maybe some of these employee recruitment programs, you know, in- increasing the, the, the employee count? Yeah, great, great question. I, I think we'll, we'll talk quickly about volume first. Look, if you are a grain trader or you are dealing in minerals and aggregates, you're probably having a year, right? The, the, those lines of business are certainly performing really well. Also, automotive for finished vehicles and automotive parts are also doing really well. What I think, as you pointed out, the, the goods that are moving a little bit closer to the consumer and are kind of delivery in that more, you know, going off an intermodal ramp, maybe going final mile or to a distribution center. Look, it, it's, uh, it's having a tough time, mainly driven off of consumer demand. I, I think there have been some public earnings statements that the expectation for consumer demand probably isn't going to get any better this year. And so I wouldn't expect a ton of strength across intermodal. And I tend to split that out in a couple of ways, right? They've had three prior weeks of, of growth, but they've only been in the single digits. So I think when I think about intermodal growth, right, what are they, what's import volume doing mainly on the West coast and potentially the East coast? Don't see those up going up nearly as high as we've seen in prior years. And as a result of that, the transloads over to domestic containers may not be as high as well. I think another item to watch is especially related to consumer demand is really around parcel or, you know, you know, small package shipments. There's no sign that that's actually going to pick up anytime soon. And I think with the recent news around Shopify selling their logistics business over to Flexport, I, I don't know that there's a, a strong desire that, you know, e-commerce and, and package shipments are going to be improving over the course of this year. On to your other question around service. Service is 100% improving. Whether we're talking car loads, covered hoppers, center beams, intermodal containers, both international or domestic services, we are seeing lanes that are having 50, 60% improvement um, all the way from January to now. And in many cases, if you're an intermodal shipper moving in domestic service, most of the services that you're being offered right now, especially out of the Midwest, going to either the East Coast or the West Coast, 
your likely beating availability that's been published to you probably by 12 to 24 hours. Yeah. So that's encouraging. I mean, that seems to suggest, well, it's not an issue of intermodal service not being good. Like it was a past, you know, let's say a couple of years where you couldn't get the chassis, couldn't get the containers. There weren't enough draymen. There was the space in the yards in Chicago. There's all these problems. Um, so if, if, if service has improved, it's really seems like it's more now it's more on the demand side than capacity availability side. And, um, you know, wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, a question that has been an issue of debate, uh, lately, uh, really the last few years, not just lately is, is, is intermodal still a growth area? I mean, we have a, a sonar chart that shows a long-term trend of, of intermodal volume. Well, that's total, total rail car loads, but that's maybe an, another question where, okay, there's intermodal volume where is, is it a more accurate to state, state statement to say intermodal was a growth area or intermodal is a growth area? Well, I actually, let's, let's hold this chart up real quick, right? So, uh, going into 2019, you saw a consistent growth curve. 2019 slows down a little bit. I, I think if you look at, at some of that and you go back and look at inventory to sales ratios, there, there was kind of a dip, um, in the, in the, the overall inventory to sales ratio. So you, so you had wider availability of goods and maybe less need for transportation in that market at that time. And you see the, the drastic drop off for COVID, right? That's not surprising to, to me at all. You see a, a bounce back in 2021 and a little bit in 2022. Why? Because over the road truck capacity was as tight as it ever has. So I think the, the dip off that you're seeing in 2023, well, I think we know what's going on with the overall truck market. I think trucks are widely available. Rates are generally cheap. I think seasonality and looking at where we are on the calendar with it being May 4th, we should see some tightening from our line just historically as it's been happening with produce season but I don't think it's going to be anywhere near what we've seen in, in years prior. So to answer your question a little more directly, do I still think intermodal is the growth engine for the broader free rail ecosystem? Absolutely. Like, I don't think it's going, it's going away. Nationally, uh, intermodal accounts for somewhere around 49% of all, of all volume on railroads, some have more than others. But I, I think that's going to be a continued area where they can continue to take share away from truck. The reality is, is service has to be in the right place. Pricing has to be widely available and consistent. And in many cases, you're going to have to look at new service offerings or new areas where the population centers are changing and growing. If those three things happen, I think intermodal is here to stay and it's going to continue to grow. Yeah, all, all great points. I mean, you look at the where the population is increasing and declining. It's declining in California and in Chicago area, right? I mean, right along the densest intermodal corridor, growing in you know smaller places or places that aren't so small in the South and, you know, Southeast, Southwest, et cetera. So I, yeah, I mean, I, th I think that the network needs to change. How, how do you see the rail uh, traffic evolving as a result of the CP KCS merger? And are you concerned about congestion in Houston? I mean, that's been a, a topic that's, that's been brought up. Yeah. Good, good, good question. Look, I, I think the, the story has typically got as one railroad sneezes, the rest of them get a cold. I think if you believe that, right, a rising tide should lift all boats. And so I think one of the interesting things is right after the CPKC agreement and the wider wider disbelief around intermodal service playing a prominent role in, in that offering, you see CPKC be able to sign up quite a few big names as it relates to domestic intermodal operations. And then you saw a competing service come right out with an agreement between UPCN and Ferromex. I think that competition is going to be good. For the broader industry and i think as it relates to intermodal service I, I think everyone's 
generally tired of hearing nearshoring as being a trend and they're all waiting to see uh, the actual performance of what those those lanes can do. I can tell you right now, there are a lot of smart people in Kansas City and Calgary and Montreal that are not going to be making that, those deals and are not going to be offering those services if there isn't if there is a volume and shippers lined up to, to, to create a really good market there. So I do think it's going to be healthy for the industry. And I do think from a NAFTA related item, when you've seen imports and exports over the past decade, so 93 to 2023, I think they're up 500% and 800% respectively. Like that's a growing market. And the only way it grows further is you have to have good, reliable service to be able to move goods across the borders. Uh-huh. And do you, are there any revenue segments that you think are going to be most impacted by that, that merger? Um, you know, ones that, you know, maybe you're going to be more impacted than others. I mean, a lot of people have called out sort of intermodal. Some have talked about maybe auto just because of that, that cross-border traffic. Um, you know, any thoughts on that? I look, look, I, I know, especially, I, I think that's actually been one of the, one of the really interesting items where you have, you know, finished vehicles making the trek across the border or parts making the trek across the border. I think especially down in the, in the Monterey, Saltillo area, look, there's a ton of opportunity. They, they've got an interesting uh, labor force down there that is increasingly more skilled every six months. And so I think when I, when I think about other areas that could potentially grow, when we talk about intermodal, I think CPG has an opportunity to grow there. I think we'll see some, you know, some interesting electronic activity that's going on south of the border. But I also think, you know, some of the, some of the, the farming activity as it relates to cold stored refrigerated vegetables, I think will often be a, a really good opportunity to, to move it, to move across the border. I think what, what is going to be interesting is your broader aggregates and your, 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 your bigger raw materials. Is there an opportunity for a large mining conglomerate to think about dual sourcing between maybe Mexico and Canada and leveraging that round network with more reliable service? Maybe potentially, I think that's absolutely something uh, that, that those companies should be taking a look at. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it seems like it has the potential to impact a lot of different, um, you know, right, revenue segments. And it'll be interesting to see if it really, you know, has the intended impact of t- of putting more volume on the railroads because you do have that extended uh, reach. Um, so we'll definitely watch that closely. Um, be interesting. Um, I also wanted to ask you, you know, all the stuff that the STB is doing now. I mean, they they put a lot of things on the back burner to, to get through the, the approval process for CS or they, the K- right. P KCS that's behind them. They have more capacity now. Any thoughts on what you think they're going to work on? What would be most impactful? Anything that you're concerned about them overreaching maybe just any thoughts on that? Yeah. Good, good question. Look, yeah, they, there was a ton of brain power that went into, in, into that deal. Glad we have alignment and, and agreement and, and kind of how we're going to move forward as a broader industry. I, I think there are some lingering items that, that myself as a former railroader and, and, and our team have really been thoughtful around is w- what's next with reciprocal switching, right? There, there is a, um, there's a lot of lobbying in front of the board right now that that is a, a potential solution to, to poor rail service or, or maybe even competitive access and competitive rates. I, I haven't seen uh, an, an instance where that's yet been, been proven out, but I, I'll be interested to see how the board does make those considerations. And actually, do they believe, do, do rail, are railroads able to, to maybe disprove that there is some net benefit for the shippers? I, I, I don't know. What, what I can say is that when you think about going back to a prior point that, that you made about how are you going to provide rail service to kind of some of these different areas of growth? 
Well, if you think about the Port of Virginia, the Port of Charleston, the Port of Savannah, have all built rail facilities in their markets that are both dual served by Norfolk Southern and CSX. I think there's a lot to be said by having major industrial parts or facilities be dual served. I, I think that's actually helpful for a broader reach in the network. It's easier to get goods to, to new markets. But I, I'm wondering if there isn't an implication there where um, the closer monitoring of service levels by individual railroads may not create some sort of pressure uh, that the STB may take a closer look at and reciprocal switching. Yeah, I mean, it seems it's it seems like it's they want to do something. I mean, it seems like they want to do that, and they want to do the rate cases, streamline that, um, and, and it does seem also like they want to redefine the or at least define in in greater detail the common carrier obligation. So it does seem like they, there's a lot that they want to do to ensure that um, that the service is better. Um, you want to ask you about something that that Joanna you wrote um, the other day. You were writing wrote an article about the California. Um, environmental rules about, um, maybe you can just describe that for us about, um, you know, moving to low emission, zero emission locomotives. And then Harris, maybe you could comment on whether that's, you think that's possible at all by those, by those timeframes? Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the California Air Resources Board, I guess it was last week, <laughs> um, uh, did decide, and it's it's been before the board for a, for a few months already, but um, they did decide to uh, uh, focus on lowering locomotive mode of emissions to the sense that, like, I think by 2030, like, switching locomotives and then um, is some of, yeah, switching locomotives and, and I think some passenger ones, um, uh, the, the locomotives have to be at least 23 years old or younger. I mean, at most 23 years, 23 years old. Um, and and I think they're, they're encouraging... Uh, you know, sort of zero emission, locom- if not zero emission locomotives, but some sort of like a goal towards zero emissions. And then uh, I think by 2035, it's, it's, that applies to um, sort of that, you know, to the Union, Union Pacific and BNSF. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, 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 I'm trying to, if, you know, I don't know how much, well, I mean, obviously it is getting some pushback, but I don't know, um, you know, whether there'll be legal challenges to that um i think one of the arguments is that um you know you have the uh you have freight that's coming across from another state and so how does that uh, affect sort of like the interstate commerce so to speak so um but yeah i mean that's that's kind of what's what's going on right now in terms of like california trying to uh to to uh to really reduce locomotive emissions yeah so harris is is that pragmatic at all because of you know the issues Joanna brings up that these locomotives obviously go go everywhere and then you have the cost of it which locomotive now is what two and a half three million dollars a piece how much is electric one going to cost and then I don't know how you would recharge a locomotive that sounds like that would take a week um so so does that make any sense to you yeah, it's it's a great question. So let's take a look at uh, at the calendar, right? It's 2023. We're going to completely revamp the locomotive designs for you know 140,000 miles of track. I, I don't I don't know that that actually really makes a ton of sense. And I, I don't think you can actually meet that deadline in in seven years. I think the the other question that that really comes to bear, and and I think this has been brought up by many of the OEMs as it relates to the trucking industry, those carriers, and even drayage providers out on the West Coast. Is there infrastructure there or will there be infrastructure in the next seven years that will be able to handle, number one, 
not only just the demand on the electrical grid, but where are you going to pull up all these trucks and plug them in and, and, and get them to charge? Much less what it would take to actually do the same thing for an entire fleet of locomotives and the amount of locomotives that operate in and out of California every single day. I think that maybe the idea is, is that the railroads will somehow fix or, or design a system where they can bring their trains to the borders of California, switch locomotives, and then only operate zero, zero emission locomotives inside there. I, I think we all know what that's likely going to do to the rail network and what that'll do to service times. And we're talking probably an additional 12, 24 hours to simply just make those switches on a regular basis. I, I don't think that's a good decision for, for long-term. I, I can tell you when, when I was with BNSF, the, the amount of times we had to think about the configuration of locomotives coming in and out of California, which were tier four compliant. I mean, that, that was something we had to think about all the way when trains were originating in Chicago. So I think it's one of the items that I am not sure is, um, it, it may be well-intentioned for the communities in California, but it may be poorly designed when we think about a broader supply chain. And, and I think if the past two years have taught us anything, supply chains are, are interconnected around the world. So, uh, a clamp or pressure or a disruption in one segment of it is eventually going to going to impact other segments. And so I think, uh, you know, the, the encouragement I would offer here is we should always be thinking about the unintended consequences of changes that drastic in the supply chain. Yeah, I agree with you there. That was really great insight, bringing your um, experience from, from being and um, unfortunately, this is all the time we have today. How can people uh, reach out to you, um, Harris, and, and learn more about Telegraph and all the services that, that, that you offer? Yeah, look, we we are constantly rolling out new features. We actually just launched pricing last week. Proud of the team for that. You can always reach out to us at www.telegraph.io and we will get back to you very quickly. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We'll, we'll talk again soon. See ya.